I'm Amy Halpern Laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Price, Associate Professor of Political Science at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, who explores the ways books are challenged in schools and libraries. They track censorship cases in their blog, Adventures in Censorship, Contesting the Right to Read. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How did you become involved in anti-censorship work? Kind of my broad background for a while has been a free speech related. So I've been involved, I was involved for a number of years with a project that was tracking free speech at various national levels and studying that. And for a variety of reasons, I, one, came to like reading a lot of young adult literature and middle grade literature, especially that which is LGBTQ and inclusive. And because of my free speech interests, I became interested in the kind of phenomenon of book challenges and book removals from libraries and schools and the way that impacts essentially a student's right to read. So that's you know, the gist of it. So I've been doing this work for about three years now, exclusively around book challenges. Recently, you wrote, and I quote, the anti-diversity activists are seeking to purge entire identities from the school and often public libraries. Sexually explicit is just a pretext behind which they can hide their bigotry. Who are these anti-diversity activists and what sort of materials do they want removed from libraries? I mean, so there's a lot of different names, right? So some of them are Moms for Liberty groups. Um, Those have been especially heavy targeting voices of people of color. Some are like here in Utah, it's Utah Parents United, which has long been an anti-LGBTQ, anti-diversity kind of force in our schools, or at least recently has become that. There's a national website called No Left Turn, um, which is a seeking to provide like the organizational structure to this. So those are the major groups, but most of them kind of come out of, I think, to the extent that I know, because, you know, it's hard to sometimes identify individuals, you know, essentially it's kind of grassroots anti-education activism that's been especially heavy the last few years in right-wing circles. Are these challenges mostly taking place in red states or are they more widespread? I would say, let's see. So I don't love using states as the boundary because it kind of gives a false impression that it's like state-based versus, I think geography does play a role. So a lot of what I'm seeing is most of the focus, it appears to be from what we can tell, focused in suburban districts near large cities that used to be very, very white districts and now have diversified to an extent. And then their schools and, and public libraries too offer more multicultural, diverse perspectives, especially in libraries. But it's not limited exclusively to red states, but that tends to be where the press attention is. So Texas gets a ton of attention because it was kind of out early on this. But I have challenges to literature recently from a number of New Jersey schools, uh, which is not a classically you know, a red state, obviously, but again, mostly from suburbs in which there is contesting, I think contesting identities going on. Censorship efforts have a long history. You said though that the current efforts seem much more sustained and organized than many in the past. Could you talk about this? You know, if we go back a ways to like the 1950s and 60s, we actually did charge people for selling books. So you could be charged with selling obscenity for selling, 
you know, Lady Chatterley's Lover, for example, was one of the most controversial books of the 1960s. And that goes away by the late 60s, early 70s, because we moved to targeting obscenity law targets pornography and hardcore porn theaters and videos it develops. So what happens in the 70s and 80s is the book challenger arises And the kind of classic book challenger that we see most frequently is usually episodic. So a parent or an adult or someone goes into a public library and sees a book on display or their kid brings home a book from the English class or from the library and the parent sees it and gets outraged, whatever the book is. And it might be outraged because it has, you know, sexual themes or in the 1980s, there was a lot of concern about witchcraft and the occult. And thus, you know, they would then push and challenge. And so if there was a broader organization behind it, it was usually just like a local church group or a political group. But what we're seeing today is a much more clear example in which these local efforts are speaking to each other through social media. So uh, one of the reasons Texas took the forefront of this is because conservative groups there started making complaints to school boards and then using clips of, you know, because the school board meetings are recorded um, and many of them are, some of them are still on Zoom. So using clips, they would post it then, like exciting clips to YouTube and circulate it in right-wing circles and then sometimes get on national TV. And so that has helped create a bridge in which one parent complaining about a book in suburban Texas Two weeks later, the exact same words are being screened at a school district in Pennsylvania. And so you see this kind of connection. And increasingly, these groups are organizing in a way we haven't seen, at least in recent decades. So with groups like Moms for Liberty and Utah Parents United. Why are, well, rather than my asking, why are these groups so often successful? I'll start by asking, are these groups often successful? And if so, why? So it's a little hard to say. So this gets into a little like complications of data. So acknowledging that we don't have representative data. So like the material I collect almost always requires some publicity around it for me to know it's happening. But with that caveat, I would say historically, public libraries are very unlikely to remove or restrict access to information. So public libraries, their philosophy is very much driven by the freedom of the consumer and voluntary choice and parental responsibility in the library. So the argument is, is if you don't want your kid to read the Walking Dead comic book series, then, you know, come to the library with them and don't let them check it out or don't let them have a library card and you check out their stuff. Schools have tended to be a slightly more likely. I would estimate that before this recent round, I've collected somewhere around 300 to 400 record, you know, challenge records. And for the ones out of schools, which is probably about 150 to 200 total, I would say less than 15% were successful in some way because a lot of the school's response is similar. So you don't like an English book in, a read, in an optional reading list. The response is you don't have to read it. Like your kid doesn't have to read it. I guess that's my response to that. Did you want me to address the other part of your question? The yeah. Okay. So the are they more successful now? It's a little hard to tell because some of the schools are still so heavily in process, but there have definitely been a number of instances where books have been removed outside of policy. So usually the schools have a fairly standard challenge policy, which says someone has to submit a challenge. Some schools restrict it to people who have kids in that school. Some restrict it to parents, some to community members, some allow anything. And 
And then they're supposed to put together a review committee, which is usually librarians, teachers, and administrators, sometimes students, and um, sometimes you know outside uh, community members, and read the book, assess it, and then issue a judgment for the superintendent or someone to act upon. A number of school districts have avoided that policy, especially with the book Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi, which has been removed preemptively in, I think, at least four or five districts I could name. It's hard to know how many, like Virginia Beach um, just removed it right away. A couple of other school districts have done that too. And so it seems like there's been some success, but then, you know, some places are doing the review process now. So what exactly will be the outcome is unclear. So just recently, Leander School District in Texas completed its review, I think of 120 books that number might be wrong, I apologize, that were on various optional reading lists for various grade levels and removed 11 of them. So that you know, was fairly successful. And some of those were just removed from the reading lists and some of them were purged from the libraries themselves. So I forget how many were actually removed total. So what steps could teachers or administrators take when parents or organized groups complain about books on the shelves? So I teach at Weber State, Utah, And we have a large English education program and I speak to their students periodically. And usually I talk about a few things with them, but the key one is, you know, make sure you, your rationale is clear for all books, right? So if you're assigning something and the librarians, this could be a little different, but for English teachers, especially that rationale is going to be key to kind of demonstrating here is why I chose this book. And it's usually best, in my opinion, at least from some of the ones I've read, to be willing to acknowledge what might be controversial. So if you're going to assign The Hate You Give, which is a book about centers a Black girl's experience watching her um, childhood friend be killed or by, be shot by police officers in a traffic stop and then deal with that. And you have to know, you know, going into it, like you can't pretend that the controversy isn't there. It has lots of swear words. It discusses sex and drug use. The entire theme of the book is about, you know, essentially police violence. And so acknowledging that and then engaging in what's valuable about it. So why do you want to use this? What is the value of it? So that is usually one of the things I stress in terms of preparation. One of the others is prepare the other titles. So teachers, of course, are taught to have options, you know, so if if a student objects or a parent objects for them, you know, having an alternative novel that might do similar things, but have content that 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 person might be less objectionable or find less objectionable. So those are like the pre-pieces. And then I usually suggest things like, and also get to know your environment a little bit. So it's kind of hard to explain that, but it's like kind of talk to the other teachers, make sure you understand what the kind of informal rules of the game are, and then, you know, be ready for the fight if it happens. Like, uh, we still shouldn't maybe over-exaggerate this. This is the most extensive that I've ever been able to document this last six months, but it's still probably fairly rare that these major challenges are coming about. And so be ready to kind of, it be transparent, but be ready to kind of respond and go, here's why I did it know your school's policies. If the policy says that the person is, should be, you know, if they're objecting to a book, be, it should be based on the entire book, then, you know, push back when it's only a single page. And then I guess the other thing I tell the kind of young potential teachers is be prepared to lose sometimes. Like you're just not going to be, like if it happens, you may just have to accept the loss 
And unfortunately, that's kind of the reality, but you could only kind of prep so much. And one thing that can be, oh, sorry, like I might be rambling here, but another thing that's useful too is to be willing or think about ways to marshal counter push too. So this can be especially valuable when it's like, so I see challenges to AP or honors English class readings. And sometimes the other parents in the class will respond and say, no, (laughs) you know, why would you remove a book that my child one may be tested on? So this might be on the AP test. And I want them to read your objections, the other parents' objections or the other child shouldn't control what my kid has access to. And that can be very effective too. You mentioned being prepared to have an alternative book. Mm-hmm. So what are the actual mechanics? If, if a parent wants to opt out and you're going to say, okay, you can opt out. What do you, how do you then teach the lesson or teach the program with essentially two or two books instead of one? And so that's a little harder for me to answer because I'm not like I've never been an English teacher. So it's a little hard to say. I could say from the documentation I have, it can vary, right? In some places, it might be releasing the students who have opted out to to go to the library to do independent reading. Um, But of course, then that becomes a problem of how do you do discussion? In some school districts, I have seen where different teachers use different books. And so the opt out may be that they're using different books for a similar purpose. And so the students may go to the other class for a short time. And probably the most creative way I've seen is in a controversy out of Wachung Hills in New Jersey, which uh, began to use Fun Home by Allison Bechdel in uh, what would have been the spring of 2019 in all of the senior English classes. And the school district knew that this would be controversial. It's a graphic memoir that is um, well-reviewed and extremely well-known. But it also, because it's a graphic memoir, does have some of Alison Bechtel's experience with early sexual experiences. There's an oral sex scene, something like that. And the school district, you know, is forthright and says, we knew this was going to be controversial. And when, when people in the community, some of whom were parents, objected, they responded that we have an opt out and parents, you know, some of the parents objected to that saying, I don't want my kid removed from the class. And so the school took that seriously and modified the curriculum. They kept fun home, but they added two other LGBTQ inclusive titles that were both pros. So they didn't have any images and at least the one I'm familiar with didn't have any particular bad words or anything. And now the students had a choice. They can pick one of the three books. The school guaranteed that anyone who didn't want to read a book, one of the three, like Fun Home, they didn't have to. And now everyone would still be in the room to do the discussion stuff. And then they would be able to pull, they'd be able to separate students into you know reading groups and discussion. They'd be able to pull common themes. Um, and so navigating that, I imagine, is quite difficult, but that was probably the most creative way I've seen to address this. Do teachers get training in pre-service education programs or in professional development on how to respond to efforts to remove books? To the best of my knowledge, not really. <laughs> so one of the things I discovered, Catherine Ross wrote a book five, six years ago called Lessons in Censorship, where it's an exploration of First Amendment schools. And one of the, and she's a law professor. And one of the things she did was look at training for teachers in like the like top 20 education programs. And she found, I think only one of them that offered any free speech training at all to faculty or st- or like principal training programs and all those professional programs. 
And I suspect that that's largely true because, you know, at some level, one argument might be that there's just so many things like all teachers will tell you that they do a lot of training stuff now. There has been an attempt to try to kind of correct for some of that. So recently, the National Coalition Against Censorship and the NCAC did, I think, a pamphlet, I guess it is, trying to kind of give tips on how to respond to challenges. I'm trying to think of what the name of that was. And that was some of this. So that is one way to do this. But my expectation is not many, right? Yeah, they have a handbook for educators called Responding to Book Challenges. And that has been a recent kind of development that they've done over there. Most of the books that we've discussed so far seem to have LGBTQIA content. What about books like To Kill a Mockingbird? Because it seen as a white savior book or books that have the n-word mm-hmm. yeah we do see those occasionally and they come in all kinds of varieties it's usually phrased as quote-unquote a liberal kind of reaction to the book and i think sometimes that's true and then sometimes it's still kind of conservative in nature but yeah so there's long been controversy around like huck finn so a mother who objected to the uh, assigning huck finn in the 1990s in arizona actually sued the school and went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which said, yeah, the school doesn't have to remove a book just because you don't like it. And so we do see that occasionally. It's unclear how frequently, but um, yeah, so some of it is, so To Kill a Mockingbird is the kind of best known because it's read more frequently. Like Huck Finn, I don't think is assigned nearly as much anymore, but To Kill a Mockingbird is still a very popular book to assign, especially in like eighth, ninth, 10th grade in that range. And there are definitely challenges which are just, this has the N-word in it, that's ridiculous. And then there are the more elaborate versions that the message of the book as a whole is out of date or offensive in some way. So because of the white savior, right? So it's a book that depicts black oppression and essentially black agency is non-existent. The only thing that you could hope for in 1930s Alabama is for a kindly white lawyer to essentially save you. And many people criticize that one because both when the book was written and when it was set, there was a ton of Black activism. And today, it, of course, might diminish that kind of concept. And so we do see that discussion. It's unclear to me how often the challenges are coming from outside of schools and how much of it is internal to the school environment from folks who are trying to push that you know, one of the struggles is, is you don't want curriculum to become stale. You don't want to assign a book every single year because it's been assigned every single year. And there's lots of new and interesting things. So that's a very difficult balancing act, I would imagine. You may not have a sense on this, but I'm just curious about your thoughts of whether you think that one of the reasons that Huck Finn is not assigned as much anymore is in fact because people are afraid to assign it because of the history of challenges? Yeah, I mean, that definitely could be. And so it's that's one of the trickiest things of this kind of research. So we talk about, so one of the things I was asked a lot, especially before this recent few months was, well, like if books aren't removed that often, like, does this really matter? And one of the responses is, is that we are reasonably sure, but it's hard to measure that there's a degree of connection between the challenges and the controversy and self-censorship. 
And so if you have a teacher who is reprimanded for assigning or just having an LGBT inclusive, a Black uh, story, a Black author or a story of a Black child in their classroom library, which happens occasionally, then other teachers are going to either remove them quietly themselves or not ever put them in their libraries, in their classrooms. And it wouldn't surprise me. I can see other reasons why Huck Finn might not be as prevalent because it's older language. Students don't relate to it as well. But there's a lot of reason to think that that happens. So there's anecdotal evidence. There's some library research, like number of librarians have done research with younger librarians, especially in schools. And they'll talk about like I was reviewing this book and suddenly I hit a sex scene and I was like, I just can't put this in there. Or I've heard this book is challenged a lot. So I'd rather not buy it because of that. So yeah, that kind of soft censorship, self-censorship, it can be a big in, uh, influence. It's just unfortunately super hard to measure because, you know, it's hard to identify when things aren't done. When you were talking about some of the different controversies and you sort of said that the idea of taking out books that have the N-word is, is mm-hmm. sort of ridiculous, but obviously that is something that people do say. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the ways that schools can respond to that particular um, challenge that you've seen? So the, part of it has been, so I've seen a number of schools respond to say like, I shouldn't say ridiculous, like that's maybe too strong because there's a good reason to be concerned about how material is presented. And so, and for example, the white savior piece I mentioned when it came to Kill a Mockingbird came from a family who identified themselves as black in their challenge materials. And their kid was one of the only black kids in the school with all white teachers, pretty much all white schoolmates. And they were particularly concerned with, does this teacher know how to navigate issues of race? And I think that's a reasonable point. So I shouldn't say it's ridiculous just to make it about that. But usually schools kind of respond with a couple of things, which is one, it's not like we read the swear words or racial epitaphs uh, in class. Like, you know, I teach my students to avoid that language and to also explain why. Why is this word harmful and why should we not use it? Then, of course, the other response comes is that when you are studying, say, so this has come up on fiction picture books and books for younger kids, There's been a number of them recently, like Separate is Not Equal, I think is one of them, which is about Mexican-American segregation in California in the 1940s. And it's based on a real case. And it's a picture, I think it's a picture book for relatively younger grades to introduce the history of racial segregation. And some of the images show people screaming racial insults at the Mexican-American children And one of the responses from the teacher is, is this is hiding this information is good. If we sanitize racism, we lie to our students. And so it's best to engage with it and explain why it was harmful and why we shouldn't do this. And that, you know, difficult questions around race, you know, have to be engaged with. Because unfortunately, more, you know, I would say the maybe the anecdotal evidence again is my worry is, is that most teachers avoid these subjects because they are difficult. So, you know, skate around issues of race because, you know, I don't want to offend anyone or I don't want to have a parent scream at me, which is, you know, not, in my opinion, it's, it's a bad approach to an important issue. What role does the American Library Association, the ALA, play in these kind of controversies? 
So yeah, the American Library Association is the overarching trade kind of professional group for American librarians. So you don't technically have to be an ALA member to become a librarian, but pretty much all masters of library science schools are ALA accredited. And so that helps to influence this. And the ALA has been around since the 18, late 1800s, but since World War II, for a lot of kind of complex historical reasons, it has increasingly adopted a strong stance when it comes to intellectual freedom. And so it has a library bill of rights, which emphasizes as you know, diverse and plentiful information within a library. Of course, you know, there's still going to be constraints of space and money and all of that. And as part of that, the Office of Intellectual Freedom in the ALA is a full-time office staffed with, you know, at least a director and a couple other members who, one, take reports from libraries and teachers um, and, you know, of book challenges and offer support behind the scenes. So they will send letters to school officials. They will, you know, offer support to librarians who are facing challenges and teachers too, for that matter. And then it has a connection, though technically it's a separate entity, to groups like the Freedom to Read Foundation, which actually does engage in litigation from time to time, though it's been a while, trying to push back against removals of books. And so all of this can can be effective sometimes. So one of the elements that I talk about in this is schools and sometimes libraries, but especially schools, whether it's curriculum or the library, it's a hard job. Like <laughs> being a school administrator, I am you know sympathetic in many ways. Being a teacher is very hard. Being a school librarian, you have a lot of different strings being pulled. And so when you have like 10 people showing up to the school board meeting, screaming about a book, it's like, I could understand why sometimes the response is, well, screw it. Like what, what is one book? But the problem is, is that one book usually turns out to then be five more than 10 more. And I have one school district here in Utah has been asked to remove a hundred books recently. And so one of the things groups like the ALA can do is bring in pressure to suggest that there are legal limits to what you can do, you know, suggesting lawsuits and things like that. And I've seen examples where that has been effective too, where administrators especially have, you know, put, pulled back from their attempts to censor material because now they're being pushed upon from different directions. Are there other organizations in addition to the ALA that people should look to? Yeah, so there are a number of other kind of institutions that do similar types of work. National Coalition Against Censorship is a pretty effective one, and that's the one I mentioned that did the Responding to Book Challenges Handbook. So they will do similar things. So they will take reports, they will offer support, but they also do so much more publicly. So the ALA doesn't tend to go public with a challenge. You know, if they make it public, it's after it already has been reported. The National Coalition, and I'm sure they do this with the permission of the people reporting, is much more likely to report it through social media in their own posts. Here is what's happening in this district. And it's one of the means that they bring to bring pressure. They also will lobby, um, will send letters explaining and going, you shouldn't do this. Your policy says X, Y, and Z. You haven't followed that. When we ignore policy, that creates the appearance of censorship. The National Council for Teachers of English has done a lot of work around this. I don't know. I'm less familiar with whether or not they do kind of 
in the moment responses, but they definitely network with these other groups. But the NCA, the National Coalition Against Censorship and the Office of Intellectual Freedom are like two of the biggest examples. Pan American also does a lot of work around this. So Jonathan Friedman on Twitter especially spends a lot of time bringing attention. And then they have also published a number of reports that have been around this, but also things like critical race theory bans. So those are kind of some of the big examples. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard Price of Weber State University. Yes, thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.